This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, it's part one of the story of Hong Gildong, a story from Korea. You'll see that if you want to get rid of someone, you shouldn't let him know ahead of time and then give him a year to himself to learn magic. You'll learn a pretty amazing pickup line and how if you have a dream where you're being eaten by a dragon, it's basically the best thing that could ever happen to you. Then, on the Creature of the Week, we'll meet the Sala, a half-genie, half-human, a hideous creature who will rush out of the forest, wanting to dance with you. This is the Myths and Legends Podcast, Episode 38A, Crossing the Threshold. This is a podcast where I tell stories from folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. Today's story is very important, and also apparently very well known in South Korea, even to the point where the protagonist's name, Hong Gildong, seems to be used as a placeholder name, like John Doe or John Smith in America. It's a really interesting, awesome adventure tale that actually has a really human element to it. Also, this is another story that isn't really folklore, though it's considered as such in some places. It's literature, but it's grown into a story that's culturally important in Korea. I've told some others that aren't technically folklore in here, like The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, The Snow Queen, etc. And like those, this one is just a really good story. Today's story is supposedly by Hyo Jun, a prominent Korean writer in the 16th and 17th centuries. Modern scholarship has cast doubt on this theory, though. It's not something I'm going to go into here, but I've posted a link to a main source I used for these episodes on the site, and it does a very good job of going into depth about this. For some quick background, this story takes place in 17th century Korea. So to put that in context, this falls around the same time as the Jamestown colony and as some of the pig-faced lady stories. A king ruled the entirety of modern-day North Korea and South Korea, and Confucianism, or Neo-Confucianism, was the primary religion, though there was some tolerance for Buddhism. As a quick note, at this time, the area known as the modern-day North Korea and South Korea was known as the Kingdom of Joseon, and the area was just known as Joseon. I'm going to refer to that entire area as Korea today, to keep things from getting too confusing. Anyway... The Neo-Confucianism part is important. We talked about Confucianism briefly in the Kamiho episode, but it has some opinions on the roles of women and, in this instance, family structure, which leads to the central conflict at the heart of today's story. Golden songbirds cried out in joy as High Minister Hong blinked awake. He didn't remember falling asleep, but it didn't matter. This valley was blissful. Soft, cool streams bubbled. As the grass cushioned his feet, he walked on, by himself, enjoying the breezy afternoon. Soon, he found himself at a cliff face where, looking up at the sky, he marveled at this world in which he found himself. As he sat back on the warm stone, Looking up at the top of the cliff that appeared to pierce the sky, he saw a blue head pop over the edge of the cliff. He could barely see it at this distance, it was so far away on the top of the cliff, but it could see him. The head looked in his direction, stared for a moment, and then disappeared. The minister couldn't really tell what it was. The minister was just in the middle of thinking, huh, that was weird when he saw the dragon's blue head and the rest of his body shoot from the cliff. It snaked through the air, magically. The Korean dragons mostly don't seem to have wings, until it turned and dove towards the minister. 
It only took a few seconds of seeing the blue dragon's hungry, reptilian eyes and its beard fluttering in the wind for the minister to scramble from his comfortable spot and run as fast as he could. As he ran from the dragon getting closer and closer, the ground began to shake and quake and part, leaving large chasms. The soft, cool streams didn't remain soft, cool streams, but shot up from the ground in powerful geysers. He looked to the sky, and what was once a beautiful blue with clouds of every color was black, with lightning striking all around, creating fires and destruction. Dodging the water and jumping over chasms, the minister was running as fast as he could. He chanced to look behind him. The dragon was coming. The serpentine monster filled the sky behind him. It was massive. It snaked through the air, and lightning struck it from above, and geysers hit it from below, but it just kept coming. For the minister, all was darkness. The dragon's mouth behind him was so big that it blotted out the storm and the sky. It became the world as the jaws came down around him. The last thing he saw before he woke up was his body being crushed between teeth as large as he was. The minister awoke with a gasp. He felt all over his body. It wasn't pinned between dragon teeth. He wasn't in a dragon's mouth. He was back home. He had just fallen asleep on a warm afternoon. Then he realized he had a dream where he had been eaten by a dragon. This was fantastic news. Dragons in Korean culture are generally seen as a good omen. A dream with a dragon, then, is a sign of great fortune to come. Like the wish on your birthday, though, you can't tell anyone, or else it might not happen. He didn't know what the dream meant, but there might be a way to help it along. He and his wife, as was a custom of respectable families at the time, slept in different quarters. He found his wife's chamber and entered, motioning to the maids to leave the room. He found himself alone with his wife, who greeted him warmly, wordlessly. He took her hand. He took her to her sleeping area and told her he would like to become one with her in a decorous manner. Which, if you're looking for a pickup line, there you go. Wait, she said. You mean right here, right now, in the middle of the afternoon. Look, thanks, but now's not the time. You're a big deal, and you know the maids spy on this chamber and everywhere, and they'd see us. Look, Maybe later, but for the sake of your dignity, we can't do this right now. She stood, nodded, and left the sleeping chamber. He was embarrassed. Right here, right now, he wanted what he wanted in a decorous manner, and didn't care if the maid saw, because he was trying to bend destiny to his favor. If the dragon in the dream was a favorable omen, then he was trying to make it come to pass, by trying to conceive a child here and now. Now, though, he presumably was just frustrated. That's when he heard someone at the door. It was a maid, of course. She hadn't expected to see the minister here. She was bringing tea to his wife. She would leave. She was sorry. He waved her in without looking, though. He would take the tea. Then he heard the tray sit on the table, and he saw her soft hands gracefully pick up the pot. Then he looked up. The 19-year-old maid, named Chunsum, was beautiful. He reached out his hand and felt her wrist. She gasped, and their eyes met. The minister rose and closed the door to his wife's sleeping chamber. In the intervening weeks and months, the serving girl, 
Jinsum, became a concubine, and then she became the favorite concubine. And yeah, in Korean culture at the time, as I said, Neo-Confucianism was popular. Basically, there wasn't any polygamy allowed at this time. A man could only have one official wife, but he could have several concubines. Apparently, the wife wouldn't have been outraged by what happened in her bedchamber. Anyway, like a 17th century episode of The Bachelor, the situation wasn't without conflict. There was a previous favorite, the senior concubine named Chorong, who, when she learned that Chun Sun was pregnant, she's pregnant, that shouldn't surprise you, she hated Chun Sun bitterly and vowed revenge, thinking that the former serving girl was only trying to ambitiously raise her place in the world and thus was not there for the right reasons. And also, she jealously guarded her position as senior concubine. 10 months later, Hong's son, Gildong, was born. It should be noted that, like with Hua Mulan, when I say Hong Gildong, the surname is first and the given name is second. So I'll call him Gildong from now on. It's said that a fragrance filled the house and that young Gildong had the appearance of a great hero when he was mere hours old. How that works is beyond me. But it was so evident that the minister, for years after, lamented that Gildong, such a capable and noble young man, had been born to a concubine and not his true wife. Years later, Gildong sat out in the courtyard. He was still a child, but he had spent most of the day at study. He was a voracious reader, and one day dreamed of being a philosopher, lord, general, or minister like his father. He felt the raised waltz on the back of his legs, though he would never be any of those things. He had been beaten again. Anytime he referred to his father as his father, or his brother as his brother, or on the wrong person, he risked getting a stick to the back of his legs. He wasn't his father's son. He was the son of a serving girl, and that's all he would ever be. It was the middle of the night, and he was all alone, so he didn't need to choke back the tears. As he looked up at the sky in his father's courtyard, he knew that his life had to be more than this, more than the shame that he had been born into, but he couldn't see an escape. At least here, in these walls, he could grow and learn, maybe someday. He could look up at heaven with pride, and this shame would disappear. He was startled by someone behind him, and he turned and saw his father, the minister, who looked on him warmly. He loved Gildong, and he had shown him deep and constant love for years. He hated the system that they were in, and even though the system had given the minister so many advantages, it led to such a capable and intelligent young man being shackled to so ignoble a life. And the minister was surprised to hear Gildong not even 10 years old, communicate just that. He was trapped here, shamed. He knew he had been blessed. He was a human, born in the capital, to a lord. He had inherited his father's intelligence and spirit, yet society would always shame him for his birth. He hung his head. His father agreed with him, but didn't want sympathy to only lead to more sorrow for the boy. He told his son to stop crying, act his age, you think you're the only low-born son of a minister? How could someone so young be so resentful? Talk about this again, and you'll be punished. Gildong bit down hard, and his tears stopped. With that, his father turned and left the courtyard. 
his robes fluttering in the cool night air, and his heart breaking for his favorite son that he couldn't call a son. If the minister hoped that that bit of adamantine love would help Gildong forget his plight, he was very wrong. As if with something to prove, the boy excelled in everything while resentment burned within him. He was eloquent, yet unable to take examinations to become a minister. A great shot, yet he was unable to take the examinations to join the military. The government's rules had shackled him, and when he talked to his mother about it, even she would tell him to make peace with his lot and just get on with his life. And right after the break, we'll meet a few people who do not want Gildong to get on with his life or keep living at all, but that'll be right after this. This episode is brought to you by Loot Crate. Loot Crate is a monthly subscription box service for epic geek and gamer items and pop culture gear. For less than $20 a month, you get four to eight items that include licensed gear, apparels, collectibles, unique one-of-a-kind items, and more. Loot Crate is more than a subscription service, though. It's an entire community of fans that share their experience and post cool pictures and videos of the unboxing each month. Loot Crate guarantees $40 plus in value in each crate, and sometimes it's a lot more. Previous crates have included things from franchises like Star Wars, Marvel, DC Comics, Harry Potter, The Legend of Zelda, Doctor Who, Adventure Time, Terminator, and many more. Each month's crate has a new theme, and July's theme is futuristic, which I'm personally super excited about. It contains stuff from Rick and Morty, Futurama, Mega Man, Valiant Comics, and Star Trek, and includes a model, a figure, and of course a monthly tee and pin. So each crate includes a t-shirt, sure, but if they were really committed to the futuristic theme, they would pack some of those bland, white, futuristic jumpsuit things that are in so many sci-fi movies from the 70s and 80s. Or maybe Sean Connery's costume from Zardoz. That's set in the future. On second thought, a t-shirt is probably the best course of action. Also, if you don't know what I'm talking about with the Sean Connery Zardoz suit, don't Google it. Remember, you only have until the 19th at 9pm Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate. And when the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. So go to lootcrate.com legends and enter code legends to save $3 on your new subscription today. This week's episode is brought to you by Weebly. So I'm still working on my Weebly site, as I've talked about. And though I am no web developer... You don't have to be. It's super easy to make a professional-looking site with Weebly. Everything is drag and drop. And when you're working on a post, you see it as it's going to look when you post it. No more of writing it one way and then posting it and having it be a completely different font or something like that, like you have with some of the others out there. Or if you're really bad with HTML and CSS like me, no more typing it out and having it accidentally be positioned like 500 pixels off the page. Writing and, to a much lesser extent, recording are definitely more so my forte. Web design, not really. But with Weebly, it doesn't have to be. There's no coding or terribly written style sheets involved. And they have lots of professionally designed, mobile-friendly themes. And you can customize, update, and change your site anywhere, from like any device. And I guess at any time, too, if you want to work on it at like 3 in the morning. Anyway, Weebly was created for people with the courage to start their own business, and the dream of being their own boss. Join the over 30 million people who are already dreaming big with Weebly. Get started today for free at weebly.com slash myths. That's W-E-E-B-L-Y dot com slash myths. Weebly.com slash myths. Okay, now back to the story. The physiomenist studied the faces in the household, one by one. She was an odd woman, and yet she had somehow found her way in to where the minister was sitting with his wife. 
they started talking to the woman and learned that she lived outside the gate of the city and that she had the ability to read the faces of people and tell their fortunes. And that's what a physiomanist is. The minister's wife wanted to see this in action, so they brought their whole household, from their firstborn son to the lowest servant, before the fortune teller. She was startlingly accurate, and I would imagine that Gildong was half excited to be before the woman when his turn finally came. Surrounded by the minister and all his household, she looked up at Gildong's face, and then put her hands down and backed up in shock. Everyone was rushed from the room after that, but rumors trickled out through the servants of what the old fortune teller had seen. Gildong had the intelligence, temperament, and other qualities of a king. The issue? Korea had a king. Gildong's ambition and abilities could lead him to outright rebellion, and such a rebellion would mean the destruction of his entire family as well. High Minister Hong was apparently so shocked that he couldn't speak. He talked of keeping the boy here, in the house, forever. He loved Gildong, and if he kept him under lock and key until old age, maybe he could keep this destiny from coming to pass. But the old woman had said that a destiny was a destiny. There was only one way to keep Gildong from starting a revolution. But the high minister, understanding the implication, cast her out, demanding that she tell no one of this prophecy. That night, Chorong, the formerly favorite concubine, left the high minister's side. She wrapped herself in a cloak, pulled the hood over her head, and stole out into the city. She found her friend, a shaman, who took her to see the physiomanist. She tossed a bag of silver coins on the old fortune teller's table, and then disappeared into the darkness. So yeah, she and the shaman had hired the fortune teller to slander Gildong, and hopefully get him killed. Gildong looked at his humble shack. After the old woman had looked at his face and supposedly seen his destiny, he was moved from his room in his father's house to a guarded shack on the edge of the property. It had been a few weeks and no one came to visit him save a few servants who were trusted enough to bring him food and books. No one told him why he had been moved, but he suspected that the head concubine, Chorong, had done something. He could handle whatever schemes she had he feared for his mother. He spent his mornings training. He had grown up as kind of an aristocrat, so he had learned sword dances at an early age. He trained with his sword, staff, and anything else he could convince the servants to bring him. In the evenings, he studied. And when I say studied, it's way, way more awesome than you think. Of course, he learned practical things like military history and theory, but he also studied astrology, all manner of divination, and the magical arts of metamorphosis, invisibility, as well as the ability to control the elements. Day in and day out, he trained physically in the morning and trained mentally in the evening. Even though he was essentially trapped here, he used the time and isolation to his advantage, training his body and mind until nothing was impossible for him. So yeah, Hong Gildong knows magic now. A lot of magic. Can I just say, one, I wish we lived in a world where Hogwarts-style magic was learnable by anyone from books. And two, if my parents had a library where I could learn how to do magic, I wouldn't have left the house until I was Dumbledore. I don't care if it took me so long that I looked like Dumbledore. It would absolutely and unequivocally be worth it. Anyway, Gildong did not look like Dumbledore. It took him maybe a year to learn everything he could. Then, he learned through the servants that his father was ill. Sick with grief about his son, 
High Minister Hong became literally sick. He knew Gildong's personality and that he probably hated being kept in a shack. But he knew that if he let him out, the only choice was to either kill him or let him bring about the destruction of their family per his destiny. The father, ill and bedridden, wasn't privy to the conversation where his wife, son, and senior concubine talked about killing Gildong. Convinced by Chorong, the minister's wife and eldest son consented to the assassination. If Gildong wasn't killed, the minister would die. And they couldn't have that. It was horrible and shameful, sure, but it should have been done a long time ago. The senior concubine assured them that it would be quick. That evening, the assassin arrived. His name was Tukje, and he sat down for food and drinks with Chorong. Tukje was told about the contract, and if not for trying to maintain the creepy composure of a visiting assassin, would have laughed at the job. Killing some isolated kid? No problem. He said he could do it tonight. Later in the night, Gildong's lantern was beginning to burn low. His eyes were going all buggy, and he sat back. It was after midnight. He should go to bed. He closed his quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, and then there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at his chamber door. He froze when he heard the cause of a raven. Three caws, and then he turned around to watch it leave to the south. Quickly, this has absolutely no relation to the Poe poem, but it was after midnight, and Gildong was wrapping up some reading of forgotten lore, and there was a raven at his chamber door, so there was no way I could resist. But like the Poe poem, this was a ghastly, gaunt, and ominous bird of yore. Gildong consulted his books, and deciphered the meaning of the symbol of a raven flying at such an hour, perching, calling three times, and then flying off in the direction that it did. These ancient ideograms were apparently comprehensive and possible prophecy scenarios. Regardless of how he got there, he did land on one conclusion. Someone was coming to kill him. Tonight. Tukjay, the assassin, had been waiting in the shadows of the long grass. Why wasn't this kid going to bed? He'd been sitting up at the table for hours, just reading books. Seeing as it was way easier to kill people while they slept, Tukje had been content to wait this one out. But even he was getting tired. Finally, he decided that the kid was so engrossed in his studies that he wouldn't notice the assassin until the man was sliding a sword in his back. He snuck up to the door and pushed it open without a sound. Mere feet behind Gildong, he slid out his dagger. He would wrap one arm around the boy's mouth and then use the other to end his life. And then he stepped over the threshold of the shack. And he found himself not in Gildong's warm, humble shack, but in a large and barren field, miles and miles from civilization. He turned to see, as if through a doorway, the high minister's mansion behind him. He turned to go back through the door, but it slammed shut, and he found himself alone on the cold, wind-whipped plains. You see, if you're going to assassinate someone you know to be intelligent, ambitious, and basically a polymath, don't give him a year to stew in anger against you and learn magic. When he learned that the assassin was coming, he did many, many enchantments on the shack. It said that he, quote, unleashed his sorcery, and through a lot of magic that's laid out in the books, he altered reality inside his shack. He also summoned a supernatural wind spirit and had it under his command. The studious young man the assassin saw from the outside was merely an illusion. 
and when the assassin stepped inside, he essentially stepped into Gildong's own little world. And if you're an assassin, and you find yourself inadvertently dropped into what can be most accurately described as your target's homebrewed pocket universe, well, you're going to have a bad time. The assassin froze. Now, let me just say that this wasn't just some budget assassin. He knew what he was doing. According to him, he never made a single mistake on any one of his jobs, but he hadn't ever seen anything like this. Took Jay immediately realized that he had severely underestimated this boy, and he was about to learn just how much he had underestimated him. The wind raged across the plains, and thunder struck everywhere. He was cold, and he put his daggers away. Stretching up before him, he saw a stony path leading to the mountains ahead. Seeing as back the way he came was nothing but miles of fields, he warily picked his way to the mountains. Unfortunately, this little world had been made to disorient, confuse, and hurt the assassin. Even the directions of the world were off. East was west, left was right, up was down, and not only that, but they kept changing. He took a few steps and found that the stony path was now above him, and he was falling into a thunderstorm. A few moments later, he fell hard back onto the path, the directions having righted themselves. Then, after a few more minutes of walking against the frigid wind, the directions changed again, where he was now parallel to the ground and falling and skidding against the plains. He rolled to another painful stop when it righted. This continued until the assassin finally crawled up to the mountain, clinging fearfully to the ground. He found that, after a few minutes of climbing, the mountain was safe and the directions apparently wouldn't change. He tried to make his way through the mountain range, but after nearly an hour, he found himself at the edge of a waterfall, the water craning down into the void. He had reached the end of this world. Then, while shivering on sharp rocks, he heard a soft, ghostly tune. He looked a few feet over to the top of the rock and saw a boy sitting there, peacefully playing a jade flute. The assassin recognized him, as Gildong. When he was noticed, Gildong stopped playing, and the thunderstorm and waterfall froze in place. They were silenced. In the eerie quiet, Gildong began to speak, chastising him for taking a human life, for money. The assassin saw Gildong on the rock. He was just a small boy. He secretly slipped his dagger out. He could kill the boy and end this. He was only 15 feet in front of the man, the assassin just needed to distract him. The assassin said that he had been training for 10 years and that no one was his equal and he didn't fear a little boy. And where did Gildong get off chastising him? He was an assassin. He killed people. That's what he does. You know who took out this contract? Your father and brother. So really, you're the shameful one. You should just obey your father, little boy, and die. With that, he charged Gildong was only caught off guard for a second before realizing that the assassin was attacking. He whispered something and the wind came and swept him up and sent sand and rocks flying into the eyes of the assassin. When the assassin was able to open his eyes, Gildong was gone. We didn't need to become enemies. I gave you a chance, but you didn't listen. You chose greed and pride and death, Gildong said, his voice booming on the wind. Hearing Gildong's voice come from the sky in a world he created to fight the assassin, Tukjay somehow just realized that he was out of his depth. He threw his sword to the ground and began to plead for forgiveness. 
Groveling in the dirt, he revealed that the senior concubine, Chirong, had arranged this in conjunction with the shaman and physiomanist. She had slandered Gildong to his father and lent to him being shut in his shack. The assassin begged Gildong to spare him. In an instant, the boy appeared before him, holding the sword that he had thrown down. The assassin shirked before the boy standing over him. Gildong said that he had given the assassin a chance. In a very sound logical leap that Batman somehow hasn't made, Gildong said that he was saving lives if he killed the assassin here. If he let Tuk Jay go, he would just kill more people. Tuk Jay had said it himself. He's an assassin. That's just what he does. The blade flashed, and Tuk Jay's head thudded to the stony ground. Gildong shook with anger. This wasn't over yet. There were two more. The wind that he commanded took the shaman and the physiomanist from their beds and brought them to his shack, to his world. They woke up in their bedclothes, and they thought that they must be in the underworld. Then they saw the body of the assassin and Gildong standing before them with a bloody sword in hand. They both knew why they were here. They pleaded with him to spare them. Chorong had been behind it all, but he didn't hear them. She would be dealt with. They had played their part, and they had plotted his death for money. His sword flashed two more times, and then it was over. In a moment, he was back in his shack, the lantern burning, with three bodies on the floor. He stepped over them and made his way to the house. He was going to have a word with Chorong. He made it about halfway to his father's house when he reconsidered. Chorong, for all of her extreme, murderous faults, was loved by his father and a member of the household. She had tried to kill him, but he could be better than her. He threw the sword to the ground and walked back to his shack. A half hour later, he was in a cloak and traveling clothes. He was leaving. He could let Chong live, but he couldn't stay here. It could be her, or it could be another, but he was beloved by his father, and that would only arouse jealousy, leading to attempts on his life, or even worse, his mother's life. He had to go. His staff on his back, he followed the moonlit path to the house. There was someone he had to speak to one last time. Well, two someones. His father was surprised to see him at the window, and even more surprised to learn that he was leaving. Gildong remarked that he only wished to live up to the name, and the gift his father had given him by being born of his father's seed, which, yeah, a sweet sentiment, but eh. He only wanted to say goodbye to his father and wish him a long and happy life. The high minister was flabbergasted, but Gildong only said that there was a traitor in his father's house and that the minister would learn the truth in the morning. Tears began to fall down the father's face. He asked his son where he would go, and Gildong shrugged. He said he would live the life he had always been destined, he would live as a nomad. He had been born between worlds, the son of a high minister to a serving girl, and now he would wander from place to place, never really being at home anywhere. His life would reflect how the world saw him. He had to tell his father one more thing though. For over a decade, he's had to regard his father and brother as owners rather than family. He's been given a rod to the back of the legs whenever he referred to them as such. He had been filled with a sorrow and the marrow of his bones because of it. The high minister said that he could call them father and brother. Please, put aside this grief. 
and stay, he smirked. They didn't live in a world where that was possible. They both knew that. He would never be a son worthy of his father's name in the eyes of the government or society. So he was leaving. He only asked that the minister take care of and love his mother. The minister said that he could do that. Gildong said, I wish you a long life with a healthy body and mind. Goodbye, father. With that, he left the weeping old man at his window. Deep in her chamber, he said goodbye to his mother. Both of them were crying, and to not really belabor the point, it was a similar sort of goodbye with her. His mother watched him leave, she too in tears, knowing that she would probably never see her son again. His feet wet with dew from the grass, he heard the rooster crow as the purple of the sky began to fade to orange in the east. He looked out on the mountains and on the ocean, not knowing what was next for him in this immense world. Filled with grief over having to leave his mother and father, he walked off his father's estate, not knowing what would become of himself. Next week, we are, of course, continuing the story of Hong Gildong, as he goes from wandering teenager to enemy of the state. Also, if you're looking for an awesome book on the subject, as far as I know, there is one full English translation. It's published by Penguin Classics, and I've linked it on the site and in the show notes. I want to say thanks to Ducky93, Jez Jerome, Roku Ed, Piccolumphus, Jack BBA ZRG, Demi Lola, Lance, Hey Staz, MJP1982, Claire Elizabeth II, Nutella Manatee, which is the most delicious of manatees, and Caleb Blank for leaving reviews on iTunes. Thank you so, so much. I really appreciate it. And if you'd like to leave a review, iTunes or the podcast app are still the best places. And you can find them at itunes.mythpodcast.com. And also, there's a membership thing going on on the site. For less than the price of 10 pounds of composted cow manure on Amazon, you can get extra episodes and source pack ebooks that, well, probably smell a lot better than cow dung, but probably won't help your flowers very much. If you're interested, check out support.mythpodcast.com. The creature this time is the Sala from Arabian folklore. They're half genie and half human. So for those of you that heard the Aladdin episodes and remember episode 8 and were wondering about that, well, there you go. Before you start dating a genie or human if we have any jinn listening, you should know that the Sala are hideous and mean. Maybe. I found in some places that they will lure people into forests and torment them. I've also found that they really like dancing. Unfortunately, they live in forests and can't seem to ever find dance partners. They've been sent to capture people and make the captives dance with them. As someone who is a terrible, terrible dancer, those two things are not mutually exclusive and being forced to dance can absolutely be a form of torment. They're said to be partially mortal, though I'm not sure how that works. In addition to people who have two left feet, wolves hate them as well. And the Sala, like a lot of humanity, are afraid of wolves. You can repel a Sala just by wearing the image of a wolf. When they are attacked by wolves, they will cry out for assistance. In a truly darkly funny custom, people aren't advised to help them out for some supernatural gift. Nope. The thought is that this ugly little thing takes people into the woods for torment or dancing or both. And if they run into a wolf, that's their problem. Apparently, if you hear the cries of a Sala, you should just continue on your way, leaving the partially mortal creature to its fate. 
That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. Links to other music I used are in the show notes. And once again, this episode is brought to you by Weebly. You can build a fantastic, professional-looking site, and you don't need to be a web designer or know how to code. Simply drag and drop to quickly build and publish your site. It's that easy. And you can customize, update, and change your site anytime on any device. Creating a fantastic website shouldn't get in the way of your dreams. Join the over 30 million people who are already dreaming big with Weebly. Get started today for free at weebly.com myths. That's W-E-E-B-L-Y dot com slash myths. Weebly.com slash myths. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.